Howdy, folks. John Fries here. Welcome to Down with the Dharma podcast. I'm joined again by my friend Dot Fun. And so today we're going to be talking about my methodology chapter in my dissertation. Um, and so that the methodology, I basically I'm using the practical theology methodology of mutual critical correlation which basically means comparing theory and practice of a religious tradition with theory and practice of some other tradition. So for my dissertation, that meant comparing Gawinka Vipassana with somatic experiencing and comparing Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings on the eight consciousnesses with uh, trauma therapy in general. And then so to do that, to do that work, I created a theoretical framework that I call the um, well, for the dissertation, I just used three modes of knowledge production, and it was mainly early Buddhist yogic, later Buddhist scholastic, and then modern scientific scholastic. Um, but I hypothesized there's probably a fourth mode of knowledge production, which I could call village shamanic mode of knowledge production. So altogether four. So village shamanic, city-state yogic, if we want to make it more general, like um, early Buddhism as a network of city-states that had a yogic tradition, so city-state yogic. And then a later, later Buddhist scholastic, which arose with reading and writing, and you could think of it more as, it kind of came with imperialism, but when we talk about empire, you can talk about big empires like Persian Empire, Greek Empire, Roman Empire, or like the Han Dynasty in China. But you could also talk about like smaller networks like Theravada Buddhism being this kind of network of islands or smaller, like smaller empires, not like a big empire, but um, so even more kind of like kingdoms. But the general idea is that it's they're using reading and writing um, and scholasticism as the way the transition the way the tradition is transmitted and then so roughly imperial clerical scholastic but imperial could is a wide range of cultures that that could mean and then modern uh modern scientific scholastic is more the nation state the modern nation state and the university system and the worldview of scientific materialism so, so the way Dot and I want to first start talking about this is to start talking about integral theory. Um, and so integral theory was something that Ken Wilber, this philosopher and practitioner, has developed. Um, so one of the reasons why I, I'm, I'm interested in using integral theory is because... Um, so okay, so right before I hit record, I was asking Dot, has has he heard about this millennial socialist scene in the US? Yeah, so um, I was quite surprised to hear that the socialists in, in America. So Right. So this is uh something and new for me. This is new for <laughs> living <right>. in France. <laughs> okay, so so Dot, what year were you born, Dot? Nineteen seventy four. Seventy four. Okay, so me and Dot are uh we have Pluto and Libra in our astrology chart. And um, we're kind of at the beginning of the Pluto Libra group. Um, 
So the the baby boomers, the hippies, they're Pluto and Leo. Okay. And Leo is about creativity, music, dance, performance, that kind of thing. So you can see the the whole kind of hippie sixties thing. Mm. That's Pluto Leo group. Um then the next group is Pluto Virgo. Um so that includes what we think of as Generation X. Um but I I I, I would like to argue that generation x actually has pluto virgo which is the group uh, before me and dot and then the pluto libra group which is our group um so i want to complexify generation x as um pluto virgo and pluto libra so pluto virgo you can think of obama and uh the incremental change to healthcare system uh because virgo is about purification and healthcare system would you say they're more <clears throat> tending towards more socialist ideas? No. So it's okay. So the millenn there's a whole millennial socialist scene in the U.S. Um, and they tend to be Pluto and Scorpio, and so that's like roughly people born around 1986 to 1996, 97. So Scorpio has to do with money, power, sex, and death, and at a more refined level, it has to do with internal alchemy, where you're transforming sexual energy into spiritual energy, and you're transforming the spiritual energy into enlightenment. But, but the Pluto, the Pluto Scorpio millennial socialists, they're into socialism, I think, because Pluto and Scorpio has got to do with money and power. So I think there's there's the millennial socialist scene where they they instinctively get issues around money and power. So I think they instinctively get that they don't want to work for somebody in the normal capitalist hierarchy system. So there's this whole group of them that um, the Democratic Socialists of America, that's kind of the biggest political group. And so like... Um, Bernie Sanders or um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's like this millennial that has become a congresswoman okay. in New York. Yes. They're like the figureheads that you could see as kind of the obvious. Okay. Um, you have this magazine called Jacobin that um, is the socialist magazine. It's edited by Bhaskar Sunkara. So he's that's another big element of it. Okay. Okay, but um, so have you heard of this guy named Michael Brooks? Have you heard of Michael Brooks? I've heard of the first two, Sanders and Cortez, but not Brooks. Right. Okay. So Michael Brooks, he's not. He's he's a little. He's he's at the end of the Pluto Libra group. So he's in our group, but he's towards the end of it. He's younger than us. He's not a Pluto Scorpio, but he's way into socialism. And then he created this YouTube channel that became very popular. And he was basically able to support himself through the YouTube channel. Um, people would subscribe through Patreon. It's kind of complicated. Like he would do stuff on YouTube and then he had Patreon as like for subscribers. Um, and it was him and like two producers basically. So he was like, he's kind of this guy that was very important in getting this millennial socialist thing going because he created this whole kind of popular education thing on YouTube 
that would explain history of socialism and then it would go in they would do like they would pick a topic and do like the history of this the history of that um and then they have a lot of guests on and do interviews and so it was a very popular thing um but then during covid he he died he passed away um it's not clear if he had covid or something else but he passed away how old was he Um, us, huh? he was probably in his 30s i want to say um okay yeah so he was like it was very everyone was like within the millennial socialist scene was kind of heartbroken and because he was like one of the main people that kind of got the thing going so then because of him there's been um a lot of podcasts millennial socialist podcasts have come out of uh come out of that right so you have um chapo trap house which is a very popular podcast and then jacobin which is the socialist magazine they also have a youtube channel and a podcast channel um so there's like a whole network um so but michael brooks was into buddhist meditation so he was a serious meditation practitioner And he was mainly meditating at Insight Meditation Society in uh, Barrie, Massachusetts. So he was learning, as I've talked about in previous shows, he was learning like the Mahasi Vipassana system, but through IMS. Mm-hmm. And he was interested in Ken Wilber and integral theory. Mm. Okay. Is Ken so, Wilber still alive? Yeah, he is still alive. Yeah. Okay. I think he's in Colorado somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Um. Okay, so this is where it gets interesting because they because they are socialists, they tend to go with dialectical materialism, which is the theory that Marx developed from Hegel about how history <clears throat> you can just think of history as material, you know, production and consumption of material and like it's they're they're using the the worldview of scientific materialism to explain history and they're using economics as kind of a master theory to talk about history and so they get into modes of production and um you know the general idea that there was primitive accumulation then there was feudalism and then there was um capitalism and then we're trying to get to marxism or we're trying to get to socialism so all of the millennial socialists tend to be having a scientific materialist worldview And we know in general that Buddhism taught by IMS, Spirit Rock, they tend to frame it within a humanistic Buddhism model that tends to go with the scientific materialist worldview. Um, and so Michael Brooks is into integral theory. The, la the last YouTube channel, he, uh, the, the last YouTube video he made was actually talking about Ken Wilber and integral theory. Um, but they so far they seem to not have opened up to traditions of theory and practice that are not based in scientific materialism um, so it tends to go with their socialist deal that they they tend to stay within a materialist worldview um, so so I'm interested in how how can we 
introduce more what integral theory is and how can we introduce ways of understanding it that integrate traditions of theory and practice that are not not based on scientific materialism basically mm-hmm. or or have some kind of way of being in conversation with science um but still being open to traditional worldviews and um mm-hmm. yeah practices rooted in that mm-hmm. so okay so i'm just gonna very briefly give a, I mean, super brief overview of Wilbur's integral theory. And then, and then I'm going to ask Dot because Dot has developed his own integral theory. Um, and so that, that's going to be the first thing that we'll get into. Okay. okay. Yeah. Just to yeah. precise, it's less than a theory, but more like a, a roadmap or a framework for a practitioner, contemplative practitioner. Okay. All right, cool. Okay, so Ken okay, Wilber, yeah, so you 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 look at the Wilbur's four four quadrants first. Is that right? You gonna share a little bit about that, please? Okay, so so Wilbur has this thing called the four quadrants. So he he talks about the evolution of consciousness. So he gets into like evolutionary biology, but he he kind of goes beyond that. Um, so he includes a more spiritual dimension to it. So he's basically talking about consciousness and the evolution of consciousness. And then he talks about these four quadrants, meaning four different perspectives on consciousness, basically. So you can have the um, first person subjective, which is how does an experience of consciousness manifest as a, a personal subjective experience of what's happening? So what? how do I experience the sensations in my body or the emotions or the thoughts or the experience of consciousness from a first person subjective perspective. Then he's got the third person objective, which is like, how would your experience of consciousness be seen from the outside from a scientific uh, view? So like based on Freudian psychoanalysis, based on, um, cognitive behavioral therapy based on neuroscience if i'm having some experience like how does that manifest as like activity in my brain or biochemical stuff going on or something that someone else can observe from the outside so like a form of <clears throat> example now we have a fRMIs, neurofeedback right right different kind of brain scans different yeah ways of measuring activity in the body yeah exactly so the whole kind of neuroscience thing of measuring mindfulness practice uh, would fit into that. Okay, and then um, so then the lower those are the top two quadrants, and then the lower two quadrants are the more collective uh, manifestation. So in the lower left, it is the kind of we the collective way of uh framing experience and that gets into more like what's the religion of the culture or what's the worldview of the culture what's what's the collective story of interpreting what's happening um so you could say like a religious tradition or um just an overall cultural framework or way of seeing it and then the lower right quadrant 
is like he calls it kind of like systems theory basically like you have say neurobiology that looks at um activity in the brain to to explain what's happening um but then you could you could have systems theory which is like multiple scientific disciplines focused on the same thing but it's like a it's a bigger macro picture picture of what you're looking at because it's bringing in more than one discipline um so he he kind of says that the <clears throat> you could reduce everything to like first person subjective is i third person objective is it and then the the collective ones you can kind of collapse even in the one thing of just we basically like the the collective we so the the lower two quadrants kind of breaks down a little bit to where it just becomes what's what's the collective worldview basically um hmm. so there's you know there's a little difference between the collective worldview as just a shared mythology versus the collective scientific observation of something <clears throat> but in general so he, he, so it's this integral theory so you could you could say that someone having a meditative experience you could explain it um using a tradition of meditation that comes from buddhism or you could explain it using a tradition of science that's looking at it from neuroscience um okay so then the other element of integral theory is that he talks about these different stages of consciousness so he sees consciousness as um ev the process of evolution um but it, but he he does not reduce consciousness to matter, so he himself doesn't take a materialist worldview. Um, so he talks about humans as the manifestation of consciousness going through evolution. But then he talks about transpersonal states of consciousness um, that goes beyond the normal materialist view of reality, and so then so then he talks about. Um, these four states of transpersonal consciousness. And I can't remember the exact details, but basically like the first level kind of gets into a shamanic zone where you're aware of like, um, you know, nature spirits or ancestor spirits or, you know, kind of shaman what you would think of as kind of classic shamanic territory of experience. Yeah. Um, then he gets into uh, deity mysticism, which kind of gets into a, what you would think in monotheism or other religious traditions, but it's like you're interacting with a deity and you're getting into these more kind of meditative, blissful states of experience. Um, so this could be like, say, devotion for Krishna or devotion for Shiva or devotion to Jesus or devotion to Mother Mary. Um, so you could have visions of a deity and you could be having these kind of mystical experiences, but um, it's based on a form of some kind. You're, it's a form, formal, formal, de, formal mysticism. Okay, then the next level is formless mysticism, and so that's where you could be experiencing God as this ground of being, or experiencing emptiness as like a formless mystical state. Um, in Christian mysticism, they call that like the apoph apophatic mysticism, meaning formless, formless experiences of God. And then the fourth 
stage is what he calls non-dual. And that means you're going beyond the subject object um, experience and you're getting into like consciousness as a non-dual ground of being or the experience of union with God as like a non-dual union with God. Um, so these are transpersonal states of consciousness. And then so based on the integral theory, you could view it from the first person subjective um, as just, you know, what is your direct experience? Or you could view it from this collective perspective. So from a religious tradition, how do you frame what's happening? How do you explain it? Or you could look at it from a scientific worldview of how would you explain what's happening from from like a neurobiological perspective. Um, okay, so so what I'm arguing is in general, people have critiqued his map, but in general, it seems like an overall good map or a useful mm -hmm. way of talking about things in which a religious tradition and its way of seeing things can be honored and respected and put into conversation with a scientific view of things and how it would explain what's happening where you don't have to reduce one side to the other you just have different perspectives of some experience of consciousness mm -hmm. and then um you can talk about it in this integral way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how, just I'm curious, because how, how is his work being influenced in America? I know that he's quite influential also in Europe. Also, mm -hmm. people have used his framework to apply in business and different religions. I think it was like Father Thomas Keating. Right. That was a part of it. But um, has there been any really like a sustainable impact um like what are the fruits right from what you've seen from the integral ken, ken wilbur's integral right theory so he he started out as a scholar and i don't know if he finished a phd or not but he was like his, i think he was going to become a phd and be a professor at a university um and he was developing transpersonal psychology. He was one of the early developers of transpersonal psychology. Um, but basically, he had a falling out with the humanistic psychology. Humanistic psychology, there was kind of a schism, and you had transpersonal psychology go one way and humanistic psychology go another. And then Wilbur was wanting to just more openly talk about spiritual states that go beyond the scientific worldview. So he was kind of like not welcomed by the university system. And so he kind of just mm. went out on his own. Mm -hmm. So his writing has been extremely popular. There's tons of people that have read his work and it's been translated into a bunch of different languages. Mm. Um, and he created his own kind of institute of integral, integral theory. Yes. Um, <clears throat> but mainstream academic world never really took him seriously because the mainstream academic world didn't want to go beyond the scientific materialist worldview. Mm. Um, and then transpersonal psychology wasn't really taken seriously by the psychology world because the psychology world wanted to stay within a scientific materialist worldview. Um, so he kind of just was went into his own kind of bubble in a way. Um, 
And so people that were in the Wilbur, other scholars, people have written about him, but again, his theories have never been taken in by the mainstream academic world. Mm -hmm. So there's been different scholars that have been into what he's doing and transpersonal psychology has been developing, but it still hasn't become integrated uh, within the academic world because again, the academic world has a bias towards naturalism and materialism and it doesn't it doesn't want to talk about anything supernatural or mm -hmm. yeah okay so th there seems to be sort of like a big gap between the the academic world and ken wilber's view on uh, the integral vision yeah there's been a schism yeah. yeah yeah i think i read one of the first books i read of wilber was actually at maple forest monastery in 1998 right And I remember his type up G, ah. uh, brother Ivor yeah. uh, had a book called Grace and Grit. Mm. And I read it and that, that was when I was first introduced to his work. And then for a while, I, I didn't read any of his work besides that book, which I thought was a very moving and beautiful book. Huh? Yeah. And witnessing his wife um, uh, with cancer and how, how, how he went through that process mm -hmm. with her. And it was only years later when I left the monastery, mm -hmm. when I was just exploring, when I read his work and I, yeah, I myself found it to be a very, very practical roadmap. I think, mm -hmm. like you said, it, he integrates other aspects of consciousness that's maybe not accepted in the materialistic world. And, mm -hmm. um, and it also has an influence on I guess like uh, we were talking about earlier, the, the koshas in the Hindu t tradition, uh, how he uses the mems. To, sounds like that he was trying to introduce the koshas in another, in a more uh, modern way. Mm -hmm. um, leading up to non-dual awareness, which in, in the Indian philosophy, we say nirvikapa samadhi, uh, yeah. the non-dual state. So, yeah, I, I think... Um, So what I understood is like he's respected as a, a theory. How do you say a theor theorician? How do you, Theor how do you theoretician. 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 Yeah. But uh, his work hasn't really been applied by a group or or his own institute. Are there models that's been working? Because I know he tried to tie he ties that into other. It's quite broad when you get get into the. Con contemplative aspect huh that there's mm -hmm. different like uh, people that adhere to his vision like uh, zen teachers and christian priests like uh, thomas father thomas keating so yeah i'm just curious how yeah has it been applied or is it still just two two gaps between like the the academic world and Transpersonal psychology is in a field in itself in America. Yeah, yeah. I think transpersonal psychology has been developing. Um, I think there's still issues about it being recognized and respected within the broader psychological community. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, his so it's. Yeah, and then again, yeah, it hasn't it hasn't really been taken up by the 
the academy hasn't taken his theory seriously it hasn't been discussed seriously um so he's there's a lot of like these kind of conferences of he's been invited to different conferences on trauma and neuroscience and meditation and consciousness and um so there's kind of a whole kind of scene i guess you could say of people having these conferences or workshops or retreats where he's involved in that um but yeah it, it hasn't been integrated within like a religious tradition or have it it hasn't been it hasn't become like formal training within like a religious tradition it's more just been this this whole kind of i don't know it's it's like a a scene of mindfulness neuroscience consciousness scene going on <laughs> yeah okay. uh, so but that's so that's mainly just again the relatively closed circle of just people within themselves yes yes applying these things yeah so yeah so it's still it remained it still remained kind of a niche thing and not yes yeah yes. Just on a side note, yeah. one of his book has just been published there in France on integral mindfulness, and right? I haven't re read it yet, but um, I'm working with the the same publisher, and he was asking what me if is the what what I'm sharing similar to Ken Wilber's view. So, but I I. I probably don't think so because what I'm sharing comes more from the Vietnamese Zen tradition, right? And like a sort of like a hodgepodge of different views, but I'm just mm -hmm. trying to share it more in like a a practical way. Yeah, right. So you so you call it uh, what, what do you call it? So I think for the last five years now, this is what I've been trying to share in Europe. Mm -hmm sort of like a kind of like a unifying theory between what we are in conflict with, like a secular form of mindfulness in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's either, it seems to be like two camps uh, that are being created and there's a, a lot of like uh, differences in views. Like we, like we mentioned, I think the, the idea of like, um, reincarnation or an existential point of view or how because France is more of like a secular state country the religion is uh, divorced from the state so they call it laicite in France which means like um, it's a lot different than in America it's like um, we don't use religion to influence uh, politics to influence education, which is like uh, very refreshing because mm -hmm. um, in America, we tend to hear God everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. And um, f but for me, I, I created this because when I created the, this mindfulness program and this big corporation, like I, I had shared in the first class when we trained about 3000 people, in 25 different cities, uh, I realized that as long as we're practicing with the right view, mm -hmm. it really doesn't matter what we practice, <laughs> secular <laughs> form of mindfulness <laughs> or Buddhism. This is just, again, it's just coming from what 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 I've what I've seen, because I think people 
the first person experience, people are quite intelligent and they know how to explore themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. I just think as long as it's framed in a certain, uh, like a roadmap that we can all explore wherever we are, uh, whether mm -hmm. secular or religious. But uh, I think this, I call it the way of the indestructible heart because mm -hmm. it's really influenced by the Vietnamese Zen masters. So, um, you know, in Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition, the lineage comes from the, the generation of them, the heart. Yeah. And, um, so my, my, just like, sort of proposal is like two, two basic questions is like, um, what is the relationship between, um, action and mm -hmm. contemplation? Mm -hmm. What is the relationship between theory and practice? We have a lot of theories, but, um, it seems like it's very hard to put into practice regardless of a different, very beautiful theories. Huh? We can like, uh, socialism, for example, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering how, how these, um, fellas are trying to apply their socialism in the, in the capitalistic world. Is it, is it purely intellectual, um, exercise mm -hmm. or do you see the fruits of it in in the community in the territory mm -hmm. uh, for me that's more what i'm interested in mm -hmm. and uh, the this the role between the individual and collective yeah um, we seem to be practicing mindfulness or meditation for individual reasons regardless if it's buddhism or secular mindfulness and the question we would ask is what, what exactly is awakening and what do we do when we're awake? <laughs> Why do we want to be awake? <laughs> so for me, the, these are the different questions that I asked myself where I felt like the, the Zen masters, they, they answered, especially the Vietnamese Zen master during the, 20, the mid 20th century conflict, mm -hmm. which uh, I refer to Indochina, mm -hmm. uh, the war of French Indochina and the Vietnam, the American occupation of Vietnam. And we know during this time, Thai had created more or less he term the, the term engaged Buddhism, which we mm -hmm. know was used earlier is not a new concept in Sri Lanka and, um, even in, um, uh, Thailand, mm -hmm. different movements of uh, social engagement already. But I think that he was the first one that really wrote about it and really used it as a sort of a theory to, to, to practice. So what I was really inspired about, at least with these Zen master was when there was really difficulty, they rose to the occasion. Mm -hmm. We know that Tai, he wrote something like when you can't sit in the meditation hall and when you hear bombs dropping and do to do nothing, but you want to stop, stop the violence. You want to find ways to, to help. And I think different Zen masters during this time, like we, we know, uh, Thich Quang Duc, mm -hmm. uh, Bodhisattva Thich Quang Duc, that self emoliated himself to help uh, during the Buddhist persecution in 1966. Mm -hmm. And, um, there was another, 
um, Zen Master Jiquan, mm-hmm. another one that led the nonviolent movement against um, the military regime in the late mm-hmm. 60s and early 70s, where he fasted for about 100 day hunger strike. Mm. And uh, of course, uh, Venerable Tit Quang Duc, Quang Do, excuse me, that was con- con- under house arrest and confined for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, I think six times. Mm. And he, he passed away two years ago. And I think these Zen master were the embodiment of engaged Buddhism, which means when there's a problem, we try our best to respond to the suffering mm-hmm. as best as we can. And I think our world is under... When, of course, we're suffering with war in, in Europe, with Ukraine, mm-hmm. but there's lots of different um, injustices and in, even within a democracy with racism, with um, economic, uh, I guess, uh, imbalance, uh, mm-hmm. the ecology. These are more subtle forms of war. And what I'm really interested in is how do we rise to the challenge as um, beings who, who want to walk on the path of awakening. So what I realize is mindfulness now is not used in order for us to be engaged in this way, mm-hmm. mindfulness is more used to relieve stress or for a certain class of people that can afford afford the, the trainings. And maybe to... Now, I think secular mindfulness is used to as a form of prevention also. Mm-hmm. But how, how do we... Of course, use it to prevent disease, sickness, but also how how does we use it to develop more constructive uh, qualities like love, compassion, joy, serenity, and on a deeper level, how do we use it to have deep transformation of our consciousness? Mm-hmm. I like this um, quote from Michelangelo when they asked him, "How were you able to create?" such beautiful sculptures and his uh, his answer was i saw the angel and the rock and i liberated it and i think if we follow the buddhist philosophy especially the the more uh, later schools of buddhism buddha nature is already there We, we don't have to do anything to attain buddha nature and my my wish was for people to really explore wherever they at a, a certain framework that um, includes, like I said, uh, deep Buddhist con- contemplations, ethics, and at the same time, how do we be more socially engaged? How do mm-hmm. we deal deal with different things less like our traumas that we've been speaking about? So I, I basically just. I imagine like we were like more like um, rocks trying to be well-rounded, <laughs> but if the water is not running, we're never going to be well-rounded, if you will. If we don't practice, mm-hmm. if we don't put our, if we're, not, if we're not surrounded by good conditions, then we can be one-sided, 
but not well-rounded.、Mm. And I have the impression now that, regardless of what angle we're practicing, it's usually quite one-sided, either Buddhist or secular perspectives. So what I try to really invite is more like a dialogue, and、um, maybe I don't really believe in perfection, but I think we can be more well-rounded as,、mm-hmm. as practitioners. So basically, what I just try to share is there is a f- framework. If we look at it, we could see exactly where we are in the practice. Are, are we、right. doing a well-rounded practice or not? Or Are we strictly li- limited in our practice? So, what I just created is a very simple diagram in the middle that represents the the self, the five aggregates,、mm-hmm. and I think through mindfulness, concentration, and insight, we can learn to understand the self in this context.、Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're practicing with different、um, aspects. Also, if you imagine like a, a spear. It's not we're practicing one thing at a time, but we're trying to integrate different elements. And、um, there's、um, depth, which is works on our our traumas,、mm-hmm. the, the three T's that we've been、right. talking about. Yes,、and、small, medium, we, big, or yeah. Can you yeah, can you reshare the three、yeah. T's just so we can? Okay,、recur- so the 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 way that I. Framed it out of my dissertation is within the language of trauma therapy. They they'll talk about small or big T trauma,、um, and some people will even talk about medium T trauma.、Um, so big big T trauma would be what you think of as PTSD,、um, and then medium and small T trauma would be like unmetabolized past experience that manifests as sensations of hyperarousal or hypoarousal or dissociation, but Not as extreme as PTSD, and then then I add a fourth T、mm. of、uh, deep T trauma, and then that's what I use for the traditional Buddhist understanding of the deep.、Um, in early Buddhism, they'll say the ten fetters, or they'll say the latent defilements,、mm. and so these are the deeply rooted、uh, mental formations that cause rebirth.、Mm. Which means identification and attachment to the five aggregates as self. Yes. Yes. So, so four T's all together. Small, medium, big T trauma would fit into the everyday psychological realm, and then deep T trauma you wouldn't be able to pick it up unless you get to a deeper level of meditation where you're sensitive enough to even be aware that it's there and that it's possible to、yes. metabolize or transform. Yeah. So I think this is where. An integral framework is quite necessary because I I don't think me personally we're gonna solve very deep issues of our society without going to the roots, which is for me the the big T. I think the the the, the deep T. I think the yeah, the other T's. Yeah, yeah. We we have um we have means. Right. The small T's. We have a, a therapy. I think we have、mm-hmm. personal therapy that. Can easily help with that. Medium, medium T post traumatic stress syndrome. We have somatic experiencing, which is a,、mm-hmm. whatever approach you、mm-hmm. you wish to take. 
uh, we, we, I think there there are some uh, answers to that. Mm-hmm. But I think for the deep tea so far, I think only the deep contemplative traditions have answered. I mean that that yeah. that means freeing ourselves from the fear of uh, death, uh, more or less. How, how how may I live a life where I'm not pushed by this existential fear? Of being nothing, and I think we spoke about that in the other uh, sessions. That that's maybe mm-hmm. like the one underlying perception that may cause uh, consuming. Why do humans consume so much and ignore the environment? Uh, we live in the, we say, a world of unlimited desires with limited resources, like a famous mm-hmm. economist that said in the late thirties. And I, yeah, I think unless we understand all these different T's, we need to be more open now to uh, how to um, create holding spaces to to transform these, uh, especially the the deeper T, the, mm-hmm. the fear of death. And I don't think so far unless you're in like a palliative care at the end of the, your life you're looking for a peace in your life uh, uh, usually we look for it but when it's too late huh? and mm-hmm. uh, of course the, then it's never too late if we're sick i think that's a great uh, a opportunity gift yeah. for to mm-hmm. speed up this process and it's usually within the these uh, experiences people become more open um so I think that that's sort of like, I think we all agree now, and that's something very important from different works with uh, like spiritual bypassing, um, mm-hmm. from different um, John Wilwood, Jack Cornfield, and the different movements on mm-hmm. um, how to go apply depth psychology with awareness, with mindfulness. I think that's quite clear. Mm-hmm. And I think the only... Like I said, the only, the thing that contemplative tradition now they can really heal is the the deep tea, but I think it's connected to like what that's how, sort of like the the integral vision when it's look at its depth, huh? Right. If you get so to the if very level, similar, yeah. I have like the left and right um, horizontal axis of contemplations also, and the right one is more on ethics. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where um, secular mindfulness can learn a lot. And even some school of Buddhism, sometimes there's a, a lack of ethics. Uh, there's a big uh, documentary on a lot of uh, sexual abuse mm-hmm. recently that was mm-hmm. released in France. Mm-hmm. I've received a lot of questions saying, I thought Buddhists were ethical people. I said, we're all humans, <laughs> even <laughs> Buddhists. <laughs> well, well, welcome to the, uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. trying to break your, kind of like your your image, you know? Yeah, there's but, no uh, Wherever there's part. humans, uh, <laughs> there'll be some, uh, yeah, unless there's an ethical, we apply ethics, um, then we're bound to, um, be corrupted. We're bound mm-hmm. to make mistakes. There's mm-hmm. a re- recent study that I read within big corporation. Mm-hmm. One of the reason for the one of the main downfalls is seventy uh, percent is ethical. Yeah, yeah. Why corporate? And when you look at different things like the Roman Empire, uh, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. American society, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> <laughs> the American Empire, yeah. uh, Western society in general. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we, we see that there's a certain um, inner corruption that um, unless we apply ethics, mm-hmm. then we can be a very good meditator and uh, we won't go very far. Uh, if there's no ethical fr- framework. So that's more like the right. And I think, for example, the secular mindfulness movement is, is catching up because the, now they talk about mindfulness based values. Mm-hmm. So, but I think values, morals is different than uh, ethics. Um, mm-hmm. and ethics is you need more reflection because for me, ethics is more based on what's good, true and beautiful and uh, what will reduce suffering. Mm-hmm. And what can cultivate more um, culture, what we call culture. Um, and I don't think we have that so far. I don't think that's been addressed. I think mm-hmm. that hasn't been explored. And the left is more, now I think this is more particular from the Vietnamese Zen tradition, which means like, how do we integrate this in our social structures? Um, how does our awakening translate in our daily life as a, if you're living in a family, a community, if you have some sort of social responsibility, if you're an actor, how are you translating this in order for the, I think everything can be expressed through the four Brahma Viharas on all these different levels. And how is it being materialized on the social structural level? And, um, of course, the, what we all want is like, um, height, non-dual, non-duality. Mm-hmm. And usually this is why unconsciously most people go into a spiritual practice or contemplative practice. They want to transcend. But sometimes you, if you transcend too quick, um, that might be a, a detriment to uh, your health and the people around you also if you, are not well-rounded in ethics mm-hmm. and you haven't really understood your own tease mm-hmm. on all four levels. Yeah. And uh, if you, you don't have any impact around you, it's very difficult to, to walk the walk, if you will. So, um, so when, when I put this integral framework, you can see exactly where you are on this framework. I usually, right when I speak to someone, I kind of like see where they are. Mm-hmm. And I kind of sort of like encourage us to explore. Yeah. Someone is like a contemplative and he has no impact around him. Then it's something that he can explore. For example, for me, for a long time, I focused a lot on height because mm-hmm. I was so interested in living this non-dual state. Mm-hmm. But once I realized it was no big deal, <laughs> I said, what am I going to do? What am I going to do next? You know, so I, I said, I'm going to go work in a big company to see what, what I've realized can be really translated into my, can I embody it in the in environment and, and contribute? Mm-hmm. So it's like, how, how do we explore our different, um, uh, limits? And how mm-hmm. do we grow and be more well, well-rounded? For example, a lot of people that are stuck in trying to heal small T's and middle T's, we use a lot of different depth psychology. But for example, sometimes we're just so focused on our suffering 
we live a very self-centered life. And I don't think deep transformation will come from that, but it's more on how do you use now generosity to, to heal. And I think we really have to listen to ourselves and where we are, but I think the this integral roadmap, if you will, it really yeah. does help somebody see exactly where they are. And now it's like, if you, I feel like the more well-rounded we are, the more we're going to help to contribute to a more uh, conscious evolution in our society. So can you summarize again, what are the, it sounds like you have these different um, spectrums or axes uh, in which you're creating, you're exploring a dynamic, a dynamic tension between different polarities, right? Um, Yes. Yes. So you you have the the height is like the peak experience of non-dual awareness, and then the depth is getting into your psyche and healing from whatever is needs to be healed in the psyche. Yes, that's one axis. Yes. Okay. So those are the two vertical axes. Uh huh. The horizontal one on the right is exploring <laughs> ethics. As an individual, like five precepts or as a monastic precept? Exactly. So wherever you are, you need some sort of framework of ethics. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think Ken Wilber's work touches on this. Yeah, not so much. I think he talks about depth psychology and non-dual awareness. Mm -hmm. He doesn't go into much of his understanding of the five skandhas. And I think of Buddhism, I don't know how deep his understanding is. Because mm-hmm. um, he doesn't elaborate on the understanding of the five skandhas. For me, the key in any mindfulness practice, more or less, is to free ourselves of the five skandhas. But mm-hmm. when you look more deeply in the five skandhas, the five skandhas are, are empty. Because mm-hmm. when you look at the skanda of the body, is made of the four elements. And the four elements is inside and outside. So you're you're leading to a very deep contemplation on more or less how to love, Mm. how to love and act. Because Mm. if you understand, I think if you really understand the first establishment of mindfulness in the body, in the body, in this context, then social action is normal. Because if I see like Tai, he wrote the beautiful book, The Sun is My Heart. If you see that, then there's a natural, what we call wu wei or non-action there's a natural expression because you're you're at this level when I think in Ken Weber's framework when he talks about the different mems, you see yourself within all the seven mems and you're not mm-hmm. just one of them anymore. So there's great compassion that's born from understanding that the five skandhas are empty. So more or less, I think the understanding of the self leads to all these different explicit um like uh, applying it in uh, social structures and the environment, ethics, exploring our wounds uh, with the mm-hmm. um, depth and depth uh, exploration. And of course, I mean, if you understand the five skandhas are empty, then non-dual awareness is naturally there. You don't. So it's more, yeah, I'll, I'll send you the, the diagram. Uh, diagram, yeah. The, I'll put it in the show notes so people can see it. Can look at Idea. the diagram yeah. while they listen. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's very an open source mm-hmm. 
open source knowledge. I don't tend to like, um, I haven't reinvented the wheel. I think yeah. that um, the, the Vietnamese Zen master, they applied this very well mm-hmm. during the, the conflict in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And they rose to the occasion. Mm-hmm. And what I would like to see is now practitioner rising to the occasion wherever we are with whatever capacity we have in order to respond, respond to the different um, suffering that's arising in the world at this moment. So then I feel like one of the issues in Western culture has been, we've been forced to have to choose between either a scientific materialist worldview or traditionally it's been a, a Christian um worldview um so you either have to accept the christian articles of faith about believing in god believing in original sin believing in jesus as someone who can uh help you overcome your sin so you can be reborn in heaven and you won't go to hell um or so and so then the the rejection of that starting in Europe, but then spreading into the U S has been rejecting that Christian doctrinal view and, and replacing it with a scientific materialist view. Yes. And so then, so then we've gotten, it's almost been like, if you talk about contemplative practice and you get into mysticism, well, that's sounding more like Christianity and that's bad because that's where the patriarchy and the trauma comes from. So we mm. we want to reject something that is getting into mysticism. We want all we want is we want naturalism. We don't want supernaturalism, basically. <laughs> so we, mm. I feel like we've had to, we've been forced to either recognize small, medium, and big T trauma within psychology or within neuroscience or within buddhism that's been used as a secular practice um or uh we can be buddhist and we can be spiritual and we can be trying to attain nirvana but the the idea is oh we're not really dealing with trauma anymore or we're not really um dealing with our personal issues so then so to me it's like both both there, there's these two extremes and i feel like they both are missing the mark and i don't think i don't think it's necessarily an accurate representation of buddhism anyway so mm-hmm. um so the 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 secular mindfulness argument would be oh you you have to be in touch with your body and you have to have a materialist worldview so that um you're not spiritually bypassing you're dealing with your trauma and then you're also dealing with the material world in a realistic way mm-hmm. um but I could argue from the from a Buddha side, we could say, well, you've you've bought into the worldview of scientific materialism, and now you it's like material bypass. You're materially bypassing. Mm-hmm. You're overfocusing on the material, and you're you're dismissing or not taking seriously the spiritual. Yeah, I think that's one of the difficulties. Um, mm-hmm. This is for, also from my own understanding of like a evolution. There's a term called uh, that uh, the evolutionary biologist David Sloan, he coined in the mid-70s, called the ivory tower. 
Mm-hmm. And he says like a lot of our discipline is just isolated entities yeah. and there that, that this is how we gotten to sort of this mess because we're we're all living on our ivory towers regardless mm-hmm. if it's religious scientific uh, secular buddhist and there's really no communication between them and i think now with an integral view i think because with an integral view we have to learn from each other and to dialogue and how to create a sort of link between all these different uh, disciplines that's completely isolated from each other that's why i don't think mindfulness now is effective i don't call it a mindful revolution actually mm-hmm. i call it a, a mindfulness island that we create <laughs> and uh, we're not evolving actually much <laughs> when you look my 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 um i would say our, things are evolving if we see um changes in the collective consciousness uh, mm-hmm. when we walk in the street and we can see a change in the behavior of someone not necessarily the appearance i think the appearance is very deceiving um sportscaster use mindful as a word everyday word now but i don't think they know know what it is is that so i think i think the key now is how to create l- less of these um archipelago's island where we're all isolated and that's um and i think that's where like an integral vision of what practice contemplative practice is about when i shared even my own framework of my the integral the, the mm-hmm. path of the i call it the path of the indestructible heart because when um when bodhisattva titkwan look was um emoliated yeah they burnt his body three times and the only part that remained was his heart mm. and um the communists wanted to take it and the the the, the i think the uh, the CIA also and they mm. they hid his heart because they realized uh, how sacred it was yeah? yeah and and we know for example that mindfulness does affect the body mm so my hypothesis is imagine somebody like a bodhisattva tikwang duk he's been practicing this for for his whole life how much of a biological change can happen within the human body because we know now with the telomeres uh, practicing a certain um uh, minutes a day can change uh, literally your brain just imagine i think we have to be very humble to see that there is um beings within the comp- within the contemplative structures i haven't seen uh, practitioners like that in the secular world yet yeah because yeah. it's framed within their own uh protocols of how they practice so uh, and for me it entails like understanding in Zen, Vietnamese Zen Buddhism we talk about the three energies that you write a lot about mm-hmm. how the masters the, the the three energy the and the uh, jing qi and shen that yes yeah yes. yeah how do you yeah. say it in vietnamese uh we use the chinese i okay. use the chinese it, it yeah sounds the same yeah jing, uh qi yeah. qi is a qi uh uh-huh. shen is more tam yeah we say tam more sp- spirit mm mm-hmm. And Ying is a uh, uh, Nang Lok. It's like more energy. Right. 
we're, we're, we're using that essence through our body, speech, and mind, and our thinking. You know, we said these usually in sexual energy. Where right. We exhaust, we exhaust the, the, the chi through these uh, aspects. Yeah. Right. And, and I just feel like we have to be humble because we know in the mindfulness, secular mindfulness movement now we're, we're exploring with trauma, mindfulness, self-compassion. And I think the next level is like now the, the energy, like Tai. I always said mindfulness is first of all an energy, which I find very interesting, his definition. And I think it's leading towards more, the more people that are practicing, it will change even, I think, the materialistic fr framework. If they come to that threshold, mm -hmm. I think there, it's just with science. I mean, science came to a threshold with quantum physics. And I think the contemplative world as we're practicing meditation now, and we just haven't had somebody in, in the Western world that has mastered the, the three energies yet, uh, mm -hmm. to tell you honestly. Huh? Yeah. Um, I myself have not mastered the three energy, you know, and yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of like a mix between both. But when I, when, when you meet a master that, that does or a practitioner, uh, it's like jazz, huh? You, you only hear, you only know <laughs> you when know you it. hear it. <laughs> and, and I think so far, the, yeah. regardless of the different secular Buddhist or uh, Buddhism or secular mindfulness or Buddhism, because it, it's so young, I think it needs a little bit, a few more generations of practitioners yeah. to, to really come to produce, for example, a bodhisattva tikwang duk. Um, yeah. Yes. Vietnam, Buddhism came to Vietnam in the third century. So just imagine how long it took to produce a, a being like that. You know? Yeah. In our secular mindfulness world, for example, we, we, we produce applications, <laughs> we mm -hmm. produce protocols, but we're heading towards now what, what is energy? How do we yeah. use energy in meditation? You know? And I think that, your your thesis is very interesting because you start talking about the eight consciousness, and for me that's one of the keys. Yeah, yeah, it's a map that can map consciousness at these different levels, and it's not limited by the materialist view, but it can um, envelop or include the materialist understanding. Just for example, the three energies we use yin and yang principles. I'm just saying. Okay, so yin and the, yang. Yeah, so in the Vietnamese Zen tradition, even the principle of yin and yang is very important, especially in Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition. And Tai, he doesn't teach us about this um, explicitly, but it's there. But for example, here in Lyon, uh, there's Dr. Do, which is a senior Dharma teacher of Thai. And he works on a holistic medicine, um, um, Vietnamese, Chinese medicine, herbal acupuncture. And um, just take for the example of COVID. How, how many people mm -hmm. have died of COVID because we haven't found, found like a, an answer to COVID? Besides for these uh, the vaccinations that we uh, the the pharmacies are making for us to, to use in order to get back uh, back to business, so um, 
But Dr. Do, using the yin and the yang principle, he, he was able to reduce the COVID symptoms just with 22 herbal medicine. Um, very high success rate in Vietnam, Kate, and a very, we, we treat people here also. Uh, one of our long-term residents had COVID. We, we treated her. She wasn't vaccinated. And it's, it's based on yin and yang principle, how to use the different energies. And for example, I think mindfulness as is used now is more, we're using more um, yang energy. Um, which right. is more active, yeah, more more active, and we we haven't really got to the stage when it's more yin principle. Where, where I think a lot of the deep contemplative states are, and lots of the balance of the energy. I would I would say in general, our, our the collective consciousness is more more active principles, where we're using our thinking, our you know, and. I think that the aim of an integral approach is how to give balance first to these energy and after to transmute, transmute it. But unless there's structures to really nourish and cultivate that, then we're going to only put, cultivate what we, what we grow, if you will. Yeah. Well, the seeds, the intentions or the seeds we plant is, is what will grow. So if we don't, if we have a limited worldview, it will limit our contemplative practice. Exactly. And I think there are other people that are questioning this. Um, like Alan B. Wallace and his contemplative uh, science, I think he he's, he's tempting to do that because um, he, he wants to argue that uh, consciousness is not, is not a mat only material. It, so, con um, consciousness cannot be reduced to matter, meaning you can't say consciousness is, is just coming out of your biology. It's more talking about consciousness as a more fundamental principle of reality. Yes, yes. So I think once the view changes, then the practice will change. But unless the view changes, the practice is very will only is either very limited. For example, if you just uh, look at a normal protocol like an MBSR protocol, it's going to be limited to reducing stress, more little little t stress. Yeah, uh, for me. But yeah. but on the other hand, but if the person, the instructor, has the view. Now he can sort of lead that person that he's guiding or the group into a more broader view that can help mm -hmm. the practice. For me, I just see it like maybe the Copernic view of the universe. I mean, right. once we understood that the universe was not the, uh, the, the earth was not the center of the universe, things happened, things naturally happened. Yeah, uh, our yeah. consciousness uh, open to, to explore further, and I think it's the same with uh, meditation. And uh, for me, I try to take it even further, and I'm saying it's not only Buddhist meditation that's mm -hmm. going to have a non-dualistic um, experience, but I, I think all of our more or less complete contemplative culture had it, and yeah. any the wisdom tradition, mm -hmm. and I think. Like you said, we kind of 
threw the baby out with the bathwater. That's why a lot of the Indian indigenous culture are practically extinct now, because、uh, we、uh, during colonialism. I mean, it happened in Vietnam.、Um, Uh, Vietnam was almost converted into Catholicism as a political instrument.、Uh, to yeah, so so I can understand the trauma of the materialistic view. I mean, this I can. I think I had this view myself <laughs> at one point、yeah. or another until I reach another、uh, deep state of questioning. I think I was conditioned by this view. I was also con- growing up in America, conditioned by the view of God.、Mm-hmm. But、um, as we know, these are all just I- ideas, and, and if the ideas are not beneficial, I think I, I, for the collective or the individual, then they should be questioned or sometimes、uh, abandoned. And、yeah. I think what, what I'm trying to share is. As long as you meditate within this framework, you're gonna start asking a lot of questions. Yeah, but but yeah. if you stay within a limited,、uh, I think even for a Buddhist or for atheists,、uh, it doesn't matter. Because I think, for, for example, in Buddhist communities, sometimes we're not in, connected with the larger community.、Mm-hmm. Um, for example, especially in traditional. Um, cultures. The, I remember growing up in the Vietnamese temple, and、uh, it was a, it was an island. It was an acapella's island that was isolated from the rest of America. Seems to be structured this way when we create just, just different islands, like the Chinatowns, the yeah, Little yeah. Italy, the, the Mexican <laughs> neighborhood, and I think that comes from a deep-rooted、um, maybe ignorance or perception of.、Uh, Yeah. What is diversity, for example? What what is equality?、Um, but I think this、um, a contemplative、um, path. It answers, and it answers very quickly. Actually, I think with maybe within a lifetime for、right. an individual. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So to me, I see it as like so that my. In my methodology chapter, I put this theoretical framework of、uh, four modes of knowledge production, and so,、um, based on my research, I see early Buddhism, which arose from the second urbanization that happened in India. So it's basically the rise of this network of city states in India, and that's what gave rise to this、um, mass movement. Starting in Greater Magadha, which is northeast India, of large amounts of people going into the forest、um, to practice meditation, renunciation, and meditation. So I'm calling that a city-state yogic mode of knowledge production. And then there was probably an earlier village shamanic mode of knowledge production in India,、um, in northeast India, before the city-state yogic mode emerged.、Um, so I just Based on studying Native American and African Indigenous traditions,、um, I have this idea of there being the village shamanic mode of knowledge production. So, so both are open to contemplative practice. Both are open to mysticism.、Um, so that there's this 
it's and there they were oral traditions it's before reading and writing um and so then later you have the scholastic buddhism that came in with the reading and writing um but you could look at western culture similar you could see jesus as a city-state yogi he was like practicing on the jordan river outside of jerusalem with john the baptist and they were mainly doing intensive yogic spiritual practice um and then within western culture then you have the later scholastic mode of knowledge production which actually starts with aristotle um and plato writing down greek philosophy um but aristotle was born in a city-state but he died in the greek empire he was like one of the main people that got the greek empire going so i see that as more um imperial clerical scholasticism um so the roman empire adopted the greek empire system and then they appropriated christianity so then it went from a city-state yogic tradition into an imperial clerical uh mode of knowledge production which is the rise of catholicism and the rise of the the uh priest and the rise of scholasticism um and then you have the fourth mode of knowledge production which is the modern scientific scholastic mode of knowledge production um so that's you have the renaissance in europe and then that gives rise to the industrial revolution and it gives rise to colonialism and it gives rise to science um so my feeling is the the Western culture, we've had the scientific worldview and then the people that are critical of Christianity. So like Nietzsche, Freud, Marx, Foucault, um, this modern postmodern critique of Christianity. Um, but the Christianity they were critiquing is the imperial clerical scholastic version, which has all these dogmatic truth claims. So they wanted to get rid of that. But again, they threw the baby out of the bathwater because I think they threw out the early Christian yogic yeah. mode. And I think even within the American structure, it's missing the contemplative um, Christian uh, practices. Right, right. It's reduced to a prayer yeah. or like a faith. A, a sort yeah. of a, Statement of belief. Yeah, yeah so... I think they, they lost that um, somewhere along the line, they lost the depths of Christian contemplation. Right. Which, um, maybe they exist within a small structure. Like um, I know Thomas Merton was a Trappist contemplative. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at the same time, for example, in Europe, you, you still feel that it's still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I stayed like in a Dominican monastery with sisters mm-hmm. that was uh, practicing silence they yeah. took a vow of silence their whole lives and uh, i joked to them because i was like a buddhist practitioner and there was nobody around <laughs> and, I said, <laughs> and i was joking to them i said where's everyone <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think because now we we live in a world where we're just um we lost the contemplative roots and that we lost yeah. kind of like the for me, the backbone of um, uh, uh, humanity, or what? Because yeah. I think the the existentialists uh, the, and the materialists, because the, the, they're more investing in science, mm-hmm. they, they lost that contemplative mode also. And I think now it's like how 
we bring those two worlds together again, but not as a, I guess that's why we left the monastic life. I mean, not as a, a monastic or not as a, like being a pure lay person who doesn't know anything about in an in Hindu life. You, know? you walk around even in society, uh, there's very few people that know, understand the mind. There's very few people that can know that a state of no thought is possible. <laughs> and we just see how far, I guess, the scientific materialistic intellectual mind has been cultivated. And I think to create some sort of uh, another movement or another mm -hmm. tide, you know, another, I think this is for me, the, like the, the contemplative and the action world must come together. Yeah. So that's, so my sense is early Christianity had a yogic thing going on you had the gnostics you had like early christianity the desert fathers the desert mothers monasticism which you could argue was influenced by buddhism and hinduism spreading into egypt and just the, the through the trade monasticism spread and early christianity had a contemplative mystical yogic tradition um, but then the Roman Empire appropriates Christianity and creates this scholastic, dogmatic structure and hierarchy. Um, so then I think monasticism kept going in Christianity. So you still had the yogic element still happening in Christianity. But it, that that yogic understanding was never able to become part of the overall um structure the the scholastic structure through the roman empire always kept a high, tight a tight hold on everything um and then when the, when when science when science arose um it didn't really know much about the contemplative yogic at all and it was more just rejecting the christian scholastic um and so the monastics have kept it going, but yeah, the mainstream culture has just gone into scholasticism and it's either first it was the the Christian scholasticism and then now that's been replaced by the scientific materialist scholasticism. And then so the the yogic and the village shamanic modes of knowledge production have all gotten squashed or put in the corner or Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because I think we're living in a very interesting time because when you observe in the Buddhist context, it was always, even though there's been very great lay teachers and lay, mm -hmm. lay, lay masters yeah. in different traditions, Buddhist traditions, I think the, the, the group that held that was the monastics. I mean, yeah, you can see that in the Christian culture also with the writings, the first writings were, were made by the, the Christian monastics for the texts. And I think the first Buddhist text was the, I think the Diamond Sutra that was printed. And mm -hmm. I, I think, think that, and I think the difference now is like, there's no more, more or less, the monastic culture is less. Mm -hmm. It's more or less, um, I wouldn't say extinct. <laughs> right. But it, it doesn't meet the call of where we are in the context of our times, which means we, we need contemplatives 
in the world that is just just as comfortable as uh, uh, dealing with money and children and uh, social context, but with a deep understanding of the mind and the heart. For me, I just think that this is this is just where we're heading. If you see all these people that's interested in meditation. Mm-hmm. That they don't really call themselves Buddhist or uh, religious faith, yeah. but there's some sort of need there to re- reduce some sort of, uh, I would say, stress or tease. Yeah, yeah, to metabolize trauma. Yeah. Um. Okay, so we could close then. Um. How do you, so you say the way of the indestructible heart. So how do you say yes, that in, yes. in, in Vietnamese or Sino-Vietnamese? How do you say that? Gang đường tâm vô lượng. Right. Okay. The immeasurable heart. It's like right. the four immeasurable. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so then, so we were talking about Thich Quan Duc, who who is the one that. Uh, did the immolation in Vietnam and his heart was indestructible. Um, so if we were to use Ken Wilber's four quadrant structure to analyze what he did, um, from the outside, it's uh, we see a monk walk into the middle of a street, pour gasoline on himself, set himself on fire. He's he's maintains a meditation posture that is when you look at it, it looks like he's in some kind of deep samadhi. He, he doesn't move. He keeps his meditation posture. He doesn't move. Um, so that's what we see from the outside, just observing him. Okay. So from a, from a scientific materialist worldview, we, you know, you would just look at it's a biological person who set himself on fire and then he burns. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. And, but okay, so if, if we were looking at him from the first person subjective view, how did he see himself? What how did what how did he frame what he was experiencing and um what did he think he was experiencing? And then that would also then include the 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 collective Buddhist view that he was in of how he would frame what he was experiencing. Mm-hmm. So what's your what's your hypothesis on that? Yeah. For me, my my own hypothesis is um, I had asked Tai this once also. Ah, okay. And um, Tai had told me he's he's in a deep jhana state when he's right. able to cut off his um, pain, his right. response to pain, which I find very fascinating now because when we see all these mindfulness studies on uh, uh, anticipatory stress, pain reduction, radical right. acceptance. Yeah. I don't doubt, I mean, I don't have a shadow of doubt that he uh, mastered this part of his uh, consciousness and his brain or his body. And I think also how he developed the four Brahma Viharas also I think Mm -hmm. is a key because I think when you have a lot of love and compassion in you, that changes Mm -hmm. your relationship with pain also. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, from a Buddhist perspective, 
Me, I just think he was in the eighth jhana. Put it plain and simple, huh? If you don't have eight jhana, then uh, you really can't do that. You know, it, it just it goes to show you because we talk about the jhanas as a concept. Also, mm-hmm. the, the jhana has been written about, mm-hmm. but very few people can really activate the jhana in the in the snap of a finger. I mean, that's that's yeah. a level of for me. A mastery of of our of our consciousness in the way, you know. Right, right. And, and I think for, for me, it's through his own practice, but framed in the Buddhist context. It's not through like a uh, it's not through like a Christian one or or a mm-hmm. secular one, secular mindfulness. But it's, it's framed within the rituals he does. It's framed within the community he lives in. Mm-hmm. There's maybe some personal uh, genes per, uh, transmission also, yeah. different factors. And that's where I think what we're missing in society, like you said, is the the, the yoga, the village shaman yogi mm-hmm. within the context of society. We don't yeah. have that. We have mindfulness institution, mindfulness structures. And... I don't think that can happen within a purely scientific model because um, the eighth consciousness is you need to produce an environment for that. And you don't have the environment for that. Yeah. You're not going to produce yeah. it. You know, so, <laughs> so this yeah. is where I think there's a lots of potential if there is like a now a collaboration because I think the, yeah, for me, it's just an, a new form of Buddhism that will arise that's married to science that's, that's socially engaged that's mm-hmm. active in society and it's um that doesn't just have like a, a monastic f- flavor you know yeah but um for example i think if the monastics aren't doing their job i think their job is to produce <laughs> one of these thick then yeah. that's something to question also if yeah. a monastic uh, culture uh, hasn't produced like a, because these beings, they need to be studied after. Yeah. I think yeah. Uh, they will put science into their own uh, questioning and hypothesis. Um, for mm-hmm. me, for example, there's many things that I, I ask that maybe science can, can answer, you know? And mm-hmm. I think this is, we're, on, we're on the threshold of trying to, figure that out it's like a uh, yeah after death is consciousness still how can you detect consciousness mm-hmm. um, I think there was a I think it was it was led by Mind and Life Institute yeah I, I need to precise the study but they had studied like a, a highly developed um, Tibetan Lama that passed away but hours yeah, before his death, because he's going to say, if he's a real, like a master, he's going to meditate for a while and his body will still be warm. And mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that can be measured. The body can be measured, the temperature. But yeah. if the consciousness, if he's considered dead, then, then there's a certain door that's open for dialogue because for from the Buddhist perspective, he's meditating. <laughs> he's still meditating in the bardo states. And, yeah. 
So that so that's um, Richard Davidson, who is one of the main people that has done research on neuroscience and mindfulness. And there's been this whole study um, where they have measured the brain activity of uh, Tibetan monks or Tibetan lamas. Um, so they have in Tibetan, there's highly advanced practitioners when they die. Um the belief is that their consciousness is still in the heart region. And so their body doesn't decompose like uh, a normal, when someone normally dies, their body decomposes. Um, and the heart stays warm. So what Richard, David, he did this experiment and um, the person was dead. So all of the activity in the brain stopped. There was no more measurable activity in the brain, but the body was still preserved. The heart was still warm. And what the Tibetans were saying is, oh, yeah, he's doing this spiritual practice where his consciousness is still in touch with the the spirit or the energy, and it's still there in the body. And it's 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 not going straight into the bardo. It's it's preparing to go in the bardo. And then later on, then then the consciousness does go in the bardo. So the science there's no science cannot is not able to measure that level of consciousness because it's too refined and too subtle to be measured um and so what the tibetans are saying is oh yeah he's he's died his consciousness is now in his spirit energy um and so he's he's there as spirit basically and he's he's going to transition into the bardo into rebirth so from the Buddhist perspective, they can explain what's happening and it's based on their experience of meditation and the subtle level of consciousness where consciousness is not reduced to matter and it's not reduced to activity in the brain. Yes, because I, I think that really raises a lot of questions because if we understand the eighth consciousness and a liar consciousness and its function is to record also one of the functions of a, a liar mm -hmm. consciousness and like a, a hypothesis i've always asked myself that I've, I've asked scientists also in the region and the and the contemplatives and i we, we spoke about this in one of our conversations is can of course we some of us are aware in the dream state but can we be aware in the deep sleep state and i think it can after answer some questions, some of these questions, but I think I don't think we're at that point now where we we have the sophistications to to measure more subtle level layer of consciousness. But I think as a when you meditate and when you're in touch with Alaya, then of course it's going to start bringing up a lot of a lot of different yeah. um, uh, doors, if you will, because if a liar is capable of recording everything, not of this life, but maybe before then it's, yeah, it, it opens up a new dialogue. But at, at the meantime, I think unless, like I said, the, if the yoga, I think your the village shaman mm -hmm. aspect is not present mm -hmm. in, in the, and how mindfulness is being used at the moment in the West, then I don't think we can really know actually because it's, or if there's not like a, 
more like an integral framework that includes both material and, I guess, uh, uh, contemplative mo- models in it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's coming. I think this is the actually the next step. Um, yeah. Not a lot of people are talking about it, but like I said here, we work with the Kogi Indians. The Kogis are coming this this, this um, spring, and mm-hmm. it's a real dialogue with scientists. It's not like a like one looking right. down on the other. Because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, no, you you're very humble. For example, when the Kogis came here and when they work in Grenoble, that's one of the oldest region in in on Earth, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, right. With, with, in terms and, um, of human human population, yeah. Yeah, so they they took some geologists. It's in a book that's written by my friend Eric Julien that followed him, mm-hmm. and they they asked him, "We're going to just study this region," and now the scientists they went back to the archives, yeah. And the Kogi were just reading the rocks, and yeah. the, the sci- some of the scientists are saying, "Where did you get this information?" Yeah, they're mm-hmm. just I mean, because their their vision. The cosmic vision of reality is different, especially the shaman that's been trained in like 18 hours, 18 years in the dark. Uh, for right. me, that's like a form of trying to, I translate it as getting in touch with Alaya, <laughs> uh, yeah. another sensitivity. And, um, and I think once you understand the eight consciousness, then, you know, perception changes also. Mm-hmm. We think that perception is uh, just because a human perceive an object that it's a certain uh, objectivity, but we know perception is different with each individual. Um, yeah. So then, um, I think that that's the big issue is like because scholasticism kind of squashed the shamanic and the yogic. Um, and then materialism squashed a religious worldview, then the sensitivity to what consciousness is and the different states of consciousness you can be in and how it relates to rebirth, all these things kind of got um, suppressed or yeah, pushed under. Um, so I, yeah, to me, it's like we need we need integration between village shamanic, city-state yogic, um, religious scholasticism, and then scientific scholasticism. We need something where all four modes of knowledge production can be integrated and in, in conversation with each other and knowing what, what can this detect and what is beyond its ability to detect. Um, and how, how, yeah, how can they be, how can the understanding knowledge be shared with each other in a way where it becomes a more holistic integrated view instead of one mode of knowledge production trying to assert its dominance over all the others yes so i i feel like now maybe we need a practitioner in the secular world that can have deep understanding of a liar mm-hmm. i think that, that that can help yeah and i think maybe people from the contemplative tradition to now reach out and learn from the scientific model. Cause I think unless they come, come together, then um, the, the village shaman structure can't exist. What I'm interested in now is like how to create this structure where people are practicing. Mm-hmm. But for example, here at our center, we're not doing 
Buddhist ritual. I've, I've completely mm-hmm. dropped that away because uh, French people can't do 108 uh, <laughs> too, too tough. Uh, one, one's already hard enough. <laughs> oh, I can't do it. Oh, no. oh, oh. Or, uh, uh, just the, the language, um, the mantras. But I think that yeah. there's, there's a way to translate all these different practices within the Western framework. I mean, and I think um, Tai, he gives us a start with a, what we call like the, the continuous practice model. Yeah. I mean, you're doing mindfulness throughout the whole day and just not as, as a sitting practice or as a, uh, or as ritual and um, mindfulness as ceremonies as in different tradition, which is for me, it's applicable in that framework. This is where I think kind of like differently than secular mindfulness practitioner that causes like a flaky, flaky stuff, you know? And, yeah. They uh, think it's superstitious or, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, I, but I think, yeah, it, they just don't understand it within the framework of how it's being used in, the, in that framework because they're from another culture. So how, how, how can you understand? Right? Yeah. But I think meditation opens you up if you do understand we, we talk about beginner's mind. That's the, that's the heart of, um, all sorts of exploration, you know? I mean, yeah. if you do have beginner's mind and you drop the Buddhist view and you drop the scientific view at the same time <laughs> and, <Right>. you, <laughs> and you see what happens, I mean, this is what I'm trying to do. <laughs> but I think, I, I think what we're trying to do is kind of like create this village shaman framework to tell you, honestly, I'm trying to apply your, your theoretical yeah. framework because here, I mean, we, we have our different chanting. We have the, a community, but we have, we're not like an isolated island. We do go out, we engage, we work. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see because it's not, I wouldn't call it like pure Buddhism because mm-hmm. even, um, the refuge, the, the different refuge is like translated in a new way also, you know, mm-hmm. in the Vietnamese tradition, for example, the three re- refuges, it's in three different ways, mm. three different levels, as mm. you know, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, traditional Buddhism is just like the Buddha, historical Buddha. We take refuge, uh, the mm. the Dharma, the the, the Eating, we take refuge. Yeah. The the Sangha is usually the monastic community. It's not the fourfold yeah. Sangha. Eh? But in Vietnamese, it's interesting. In Vietnamese, then the third refuge, the third the third time we take refuge is like I take refuge in the Buddha in me. Mm-hmm. I take mm-hmm. refuge in the Dharma in me, and I take refuge in the Sangha in me, and it, it's another sort of way to, for me, integrate that more into a, a language now that people can understand. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, good. Uh, yeah, but I think we we have good examples already in history. I think the the ninth century and the Tang Dynasty in China. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think things were working on all these four levels to tell you honestly. Right. Right. Yeah, you saw Zen masters, you saw the, uh, you saw the kind of like the scholars advising mm-hmm. the, 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 the city, sta- the city yeah. state. Yeah. Yeah. And then Vietnam, we had the 12th century, the Jiang, Jiang dynasty, mm-hmm. which, uh, um, the king renounced to become a, a, a monk, a monk uh, one of the, 
the bamboo forest uh, mon monastery yeah. school was built from Church, that. Churchland. Yeah, Jiplan, Jiplan Monastery was built from that the 12th century movement of the Zhang dynasty. So I think it just takes a little time, but I think it's good to frame it. I think I think what you're doing is very interesting because it's it's giving like a a framework for a culture, an awakened culture to be born within the Western framework. And I think yeah. it's something, yeah, I think it's something worth worth looking at because um, unless we have an awakened culture, I think more or less um, we'll probably kill ourselves. <laughs> Everybody, yeah. We'll probably kill ourselves before we, we, we produce an awakened being. I think it was Martin Luther King, he said, uh, we either die as or die together like fools mm -hmm. or, or walk together like brothers and sisters. Yeah. And I think it's within this economical spirit with regardless of the different um, islands that we're all kind of like stuck on. Yeah. And if we don't really make that um, connection. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's got to start somewhere. Right. Yeah. And so like even we, I think we can ha we can agree on a common ground with the precepts, right? So, like, whatever your worldview is, we can reach, we can have common ground and solidarity around the precepts, and then just have an open dialogue about contemplative practice and these different states of consciousness, and um, that can be a basis to have solidarity then between different groups. Um, yeah, working for you know, a common goal, basically. Yeah, I think yeah. it takes some time because now the, the, the scientists are meditating also. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think it takes some time, but I think we're heading in the right direction. We might not see it concretely, immediately. Yeah. And the last point, I think um, I left out is really for any sort of I think we can evolve as an individual much faster than the collective. We see that yeah. on, on our own path, but uh, within the small group also. Mm -hmm. And I think if there's a really, like a what you call a village shaman state or within the small group, I mm -hmm. think that's sort of like the, the, the key now to how to move forward and our own definition of um awakening you know what what is awakening mm -hmm. and i think the more practitioners we have in different s small groups um communities small structures that's sort of like um how to connect all the different um i think it was one one person that was saying like fire was invented actually at the same time in different parts of the world. Hmm. Right, right. There's like people gathering together, forming communities, and then there's just, it reaches kind of like a critical mass when, yes. when the community reaches a certain level of cooperation and connection with each other, then it can manifest things. Yes. So like right. within the Buddhist perspective, we're saying that they're touching like a, a liar consciousness, you know? Yeah, and it's just uh, happening everywhere around the world. But I think if there's more and more people practicing, 
um, awareness practice in Western society. Mm-hmm. I think the Dalai Lama, he actually said, the only thing that's missing in society now is that people don't meditate. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. They, we have no discernment, right? we, mm-hmm. self-awareness of ourselves, our, our emotions, our thoughts. And the second thing is like uh, our emotions, yeah. which is the root of all wars or, or violence. And, yeah. and I think that's where now with contempl- contemplative science, integral models, communities, um, they are responding to all the different um, problems that we uh, have in society. Mm-hmm. I would, I would truly say, when people come, I have many. We have many people visit our center, um, but I think one thing they see is like hope because we don't really claim to convert them to Buddhism. Even though I'm, I feel profoundly Buddhist. Mm-hmm. I feel more like a people should be just going on a contemplative path, uh, leading mm-hmm. their lives. Also, they don't have to be a monk mm-hmm. to become. A, uh, mm-hmm. awaken you know we we all have a, a lot of insecurity in us i think sometimes mm-hmm. people think if only i'm a monk maybe i'll be free because uh, we've been conditioned by a lot of texts you know they're saying yeah. only the the monks can be liberated but i just say go back to the buddha's teaching find out for yourself you know find out right. for yourself. right and i think um when people come here they do feel like there is a response to mm. like all the different um, collapse that's happening in society right now, which is like um, ecological collapse, uh, discrimination. Mm. I mean, that, that really haven't been solved either. Sexuality also. Yeah. Um, yeah. A religion, you know? Mm. And I think we just need to see models of more the uh, new person, I mean, the evolved person. Yeah. Yeah. Where re- we need to redefine human development and like, yeah, re- redefine what it means to be human. Um, yeah, otherwise it just drops to the lowest common denominator of whatever, some kind of more compulsive visceral drive. Yes, yes. And then it's Yeah, like, I think yeah. in a way the Buddha, he did it, creating this, the, the microstructure within the Sangha. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think at the end, it was just too isolated. It was just the, the relationship between the, the society became, I think, more the early Buddhism is like, it became like a, a doctrine, just a self-salvation, you know? And, and I think uh, people weren't maybe interested in that anymore, you know? That's why the Mahayana movement came into being, you know? And I think it's the same for a secular form of mindfulness. It's sort of like, um, I don't want to put labels, huh? Because yeah. I respect the different schools of Buddhism, but uh, usually like the Theravadan form is more on, on self-practice, which is the foundation, you know? And the, the Mahayana is more on the Bodhisattva's vow and <laughs> the... Mm-hmm. But I think uh, we have been uh, serving too much, but not with the Bodhisattva's vow in society, and people mm-hmm. are exhausted, and they're looking for a way to self-care, take care of themselves. And I think just time will tell. I think as long as there's a, a right view, mm-hmm. and like the village shaman models 
are arising within society. I think that's where you see sort of hope. Yeah, yeah, we can we can revive and restore the earlier modes of knowledge production, and then that way we can let go of. The yeah, exactly, and yeah. it's only within the the communities that you can see. Uh, a jump in evolution, conscious evolution. You're not going to see that in society, huh? You go in society right. and like, I was almost killed the other day walking in the wrong neighborhood. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it's, honestly, right. Right. I told Kyo, we live in a country and I almost got killed, you know? Yeah. Uh, because yeah. of my skin color, you know? Here it is right. predominantly white-skinned people, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah. And yeah, and I was just laughing because I said, I feel so safe when I come here, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I made a joke because when David Sloan, he come to Plum Village, he said, wow, when you come here, you have to be mindful. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't, and this is a part of your, what you're contributing to a conscious evolution. He, yeah. he says, right when you walk out of here, you're not mindful anymore. No? Yeah. Yeah, and he saw that really the importance of creating these small structures, and um, I I don't think they should be big institution. This is this is mm-hmm. the difference because I think mm-hmm. when it becomes a, a big institutions, then you don't see the the village shaman anymore. Yeah, you see more of the the scholars. You know, the scholars yeah. they conceptually they know that this is what happened to Buddhism, that even Thai he he fought against. You know. Yeah, you can have yeah. a PhD in Buddhist doctrine, but you can't apply emptiness in your daily life. And there's a big gap, and there's a there's a mm-hmm. a lot of questioning to do within that context. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So we'll wrap okay. it up for here today. Uh, thank you again, Dad, for joining me on this. Yeah. Nice uh, speaking to you again. And so next time we meet, we'll be going into the chapter where I compare Vipassana from Goenka uh, with somatic experiencing developed by Peter Levine. So that'll be comparing early Buddhist yogic theory and practice with somatic trauma therapy theory and practice. Okay. So you're not getting to the the Yogacarya yet? Uh, And then that's the next chapter is... I interviewed the six OI psychotherapists and I asked how do they integrate Buddhism and trauma therapy and almost all of them use the Yogacara uh, eight consciousnesses to understand what trauma is and how to respond to it. Um, okay. Yes. So that, yeah. So that would be a, then the, another podcast. The one out, yeah, the one after the next. Okay, wonderful. Cool. All right.